Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Yeah, as uh, Don was saying, I'm on double duty today, so I didn't just decide to wear this uniform for um, for attention. <laughs> um, but uh, it's a privilege to to serve uh, you this morning with with our with the word. Uh, let's uh, turn to First uh, Kings. Uh, we've been I've been making my way slowly through uh, this text. Um, we're going to be uh, in chapter 18 uh, from verse 1 down to verse 16. Let me read it to you. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he will take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they have not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will take care of you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, this is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak. You are the one who makes everything out of nothing by the mere power of your word. And we ask that you would make in us, create in us, uh, new hearts and a spirit to receive your word and to be changed by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you afraid of? Maybe it's uh, going to the dentist, or roller coasters. Perhaps it's a, a question you ask your kids as you put them to the bed the third or fourth time in a particular night, trying to reassure them that there's nothing to be afraid of. In a world where we have increasingly exerted our technological prowess over all things, fear seems like a quaint, outdated emotion that is reserved for children or or primitive tribes. 
Yeah, maybe this explains the popularity of horror movies because we still have this desire uh, to, to recognize that there's things beyond our control that we ought to be afraid of. And if we consider the mental health data available, uh, it seems that fears and anxieties have not been conquered despite all of our advances. Suicide rates are up. There's an epidemic of loneliness. There are a laundry list of topics to be concerned about. The economy, the culture, the environment, politics, illness, so on and so forth. So we haven't been able to solve life's problems. We haven't been able to eliminate fear from the human condition. And I would suggest that we're, we're looking at the problem wrong if that's our goal. It's not that fear is the problem. It's that we fear the wrong things. We're so used to being in control of our lives that once that illusion of control is shattered, so are we. And our fears grow. They're exacerbated. Our text today calls us to order our fear properly. It doesn't call us to abandon fear, but to order it properly. You see, the Lord of hosts, the God of heaven and earth, is the only one that we need to fear. And in fear of him, all other fears dissipate. What the Bible is asking us to do is have our imaginations captured and fixated by the Lord. So when I speak of fear, I don't mean this abject terror or this 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 um, this horror like what you might feel in a horror movie. No, no. We're asking what captivates us? What captures our imaginations? Is it the Lord? Or is it something else? And hopefully from this text we'll be able to realize that we can proclaim alongside the psalmist, with the Lord on my side, I do not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side to help me. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7. We'll unpack this in two ways. First, suffering reveals what we really fear. And second, persecution reveals who we really fear. So let's begin. Suffering reveals what we really fear. If you recall from... A month ago, I know that's a long time ago to remember a sermon, but uh, Elijah, in the previous chapter, took shelter with a pagan widow in the land of Sidon, where the worship of Baal originated and spread to Israel. And now, um, well, the Lord had declared through his prophet that he was going to strike the land with a drought because of Israel's idolatry. Because Baal claimed to be the god of the storm, the Lord determined to challenge Baal in his own playing field to demonstrate to his people that he alone controlled the forces of nature. But now the time had come for God to deal with the wicked king Ahab directly. He commands Elijah to show himself to Ahab. After three years of scorching heat, God was finally going to open up the heavens. Uh, perhaps this is a little bit difficult for us, or maybe it's easier with the raining cats and dogs outside. What the devastation of no rain would feel like. Uh, 
right now in the American West, scientists say that there's a, there's a mega drought occurring, uh, that there's the reservoirs and the Colorado River are an all-time low. And yet, um, the only practical effect, it seems, is that people in Vegas can't have grass on their lawns. It's not that big of a deal, right? It, but during the time of this text, everything depended on the rain. Crops failed. People starved. The land became parched. There was no life and no hope without the coming of rain. In fact, things have gotten so bad that even Ahab the king, the one, the most powerful one, insulated from the worst effects, even he now is feeling it personally. In verse 5, we read that he directs his servant Obadiah, more on him later, but he directs his servant Obadiah to go look for water for his personal herds of horses and mules. See, Ahab is now worried about his own bottom line. In the previous chapters, the author of Kings noted that Ahab had married a foreign pagan princess, Jezebel, in order to fortify himself, to cement this political, um, his political power. He had defied the Lord's curse on Jericho by rebuilding it. He, he put his trust in his own power, not in the Lord. And horses and mules were the equivalent of tanks and fighter jets for Ahab. They were the key to his power. With a powerful cavalry, a king could wage warfare to conquer, to defend himself, to subjugate his people and collect taxes. And Ahab was now concerned that the drought was going to affect his power. It never occurs to him at all to consider what was the cause of the drought, namely idolatry occurring under his watch. In fact, in verse 4, we read that Jezebel had cut off the prophets of the Lord. That verb, cut off, is used in the next uh, sentence, uh, in the next verse, when Ahab says, Let's go and save the horses and mules alive and not lose, that's the verb there, not lose, not, that, that his animals would not be cut off. You see, Ahab was concerned about his animals. He didn't have any regard for human life in comparison. Even now, experiencing the full judgment of God, his first instinct is to preserve himself, to circle the wagons, to double down on stubborn self-dependence rather than repenting and submitting to the Lord. See, God's judgment had revealed what was important to Ahab himself. Contrast Ahab's response with that of David in 2 Samuel 21.1. In in that episode, uh, Israel again is struggled for drought, a famine. The Lord had struck Israel with a famine because... uh, they had failed to provide justice for a people group that had been subjugated uh, in the book of Joshua that had called to them and, and asked them to um, promise safety. You can go read it. Uh, but I'll just say that David, he goes to the Lord in prayer. He repents of his sin. He, he repents of the sin of Israel. That's what Ahab should have done but he doesn't. 
I recently listened to a, a podcast episode about a doctor named Walter Freeman. Uh, he was an early pioneer of lobotomy. Lobotomy, if you're not familiar, was a surgical technique uh, in the first half of the 20th century where mentally ill patients would be treated basically by doctors jabbing their brains with needles, almost randomly. It was a very dangerous procedure. Uh, many patients died or suffered negative side effects. It had this uh, uh, effect of making people docile and easily controlled, as it were. So for schizophrenics, it was seen as a good way to treat their condition. And Freeman was an enthusiastic practitioner of this method. He would, he would travel around the country to see to follow up with his patients years afterwards. He would keep a detailed log of, of their progress. And even after lobotomy was widely discredited in the 1950s and 60s, he persisted in practicing it. He was convinced of its efficacy, and he refused to acknowledge that any harm had been done to his patients. He died in 1972. He went to his grave fully convinced that he had done good for his patients. And while it seems shocking to us that a doctor who had sworn an oath to do no harm would, would think that jabbing needles into his patient's brain, that this was good for them, we ought to consider ourselves where our blind spots are, where we have doubled down on our sin. I'm convinced that future generations will look back on the practice of the sterilization and mutilation of children in the same way as we do on lobotomy. Confronted with our failure and under the righteous judgment of God left to our own devices, we, we double down on sin, don't we? we? We are determined to grit our teeth and see our way through. We don't want to hear that we are wrong. Even in the final judgment, once all doubt and uncertainty about the holiness of God and the graciousness of Christ is revealed to all, even then the condemned will still stubbornly refuse to repent, like Ahab. But we can consider a different response in the character of Ahab's servant, Obadiah. His name means servant of God. It kind of sums up um, who he is, just like Elijah's name means that Yahweh is God. Here is a man who is faithful to the Lord, who has continued to fear him and to follow him in a land filled with wickedness and under the authority of an evil king who hates the Lord. Like the psalmist, Obadiah can declare some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20, verse 7. The author is careful to note in verse 3 that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And he's able to do this while maintaining this role in the household of Ahab, serving him as his prime minister, his right-hand man. In fact, Ahab trusts the critical mission of finding water for his horses to Obadiah. He must have been an effective administrator. And he uses a position of authority, in fact, to save the prophets of God. 
the judgment of God's drought had revealed what Obadiah really cared about, which is the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, if I'm being honest, I think Elijah is a cooler character than Obadiah. I named my third child after Elijah, right? And uh, we can see, right, he's like this rebel iconoclast in the desert. He's like the rock star in leather, rocking out for the Lord, (laughs) traveling around doing miracles and preaching God's judgment. Obadiah is the quiet guy commuting from the suburbs into town every day to punch the clock. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but I think that's our natural inclination, isn't it? To to, to gravitate towards the spectacular rather than the ordinary. But the truth is, most of us are not called to be Elijah's. Most of us are are not called to, to live those kinds of lifestyles and have those kinds of ministries. Most of us are called to the life of Obadiah serving in the court of an evil king. You see, we are all given various callings by God in different industries, professions, institutions. I'm standing up here today in the the uniform of the U.S. Army, where I've been called to serve as a chaplain. I have a dual allegiance to God and to country. And... Oftentimes, it's, it's, it's difficult for us as Christians to make the connection from, from Sunday to Monday, isn't it? We think uh, that ministry or people that are involved in ministry, that's, that their work is more valuable than quote-unquote secular work, right? But in truth, I don't please God more standing up here and delivering the word than you do in anything that you're called to do in the course of your lives. It's not the nature of the work, but the nature of the person that makes the work commendable to God. What does is, what is Hebrews 11.6 say? It says, without a seminary degree, no one can please God? No. Without faith, no one can please God. Or the converse, if you have faith, you can please God. You're trusting in His goodness, and in, in whatever you do, whatever you uh, do, you... It's pleasing to him. Cutting grass. Nursing a baby at 2 a.m. Writing code. Fighting forest fires. Whatever you've been called to do. So we have to make that connection from our faith to our work. The sociologist James Davison Hunter coined the term faithful presence to characterize the way Christians ought to inhabit their workplaces. Uh, And oftentimes, we will choose one or the other, right? Faithful. We want to be faithful. So we're going to flee the public square. We're going to work only for uh, Christian institutions. We're going to avoid the world out of fear of being contaminated. Or, we'll be present, but what we do and how we act is going to resemble that of our unbelieving co-workers. You see, we have to bring both. We can't separate those two terms. Jesus called us to be not of the world, but still in the world. Augustine, in 
in the city of God observes that secular, this term secular, doesn't actually refer to a, a physical location. It refers to a time period. Right now, between Jesus' first and second coming, the wheat and the tares are mixed. It's only at the end of time that the sheep and the goats are separated from one another. First Peter's two, uh, uh, First Peter two twelve says this: that keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It doesn't say avoid the Gentiles or blend in with the Gentiles. No, we are to be among the Gentiles, but to be different, to let our lives be a witness to Christ. This doesn't mean that you have to turn every conversation with a coworker into an evangelism opportunity, but you shouldn't discount that possibility either. Sometimes being faithful means we do a really good job. We're called to do our best in our vocations. It's going to look different depending on what you do, where you've been called, your stage in life, but faithfulness in the world is a requirement for all disciples of Christ. Jesus is king of heaven and earth and also of Monday through Saturday. This brings me to my second point, that persecution reveals who we truly fear. Obadiah, on his way to do Ahab's bidding, runs into Elijah. God's providence has brought his prophet and his servant together in order that his will might be accomplished. For Elijah, the task was simple. He, he is to go, he wants Obadiah, Obadiah to go to Ahab and report that he has returned. And the text notes that Ahab has been looking for Elijah all these three years. He, he knows somehow that Elijah's presence or absence is connected to the drought. Elijah, however, is still showing that God is calling the shots. You see, he's, he wants Obadiah to go to Ahab. He wants Ahab to report to him. He is not going to go to Ahab. You see, all human government or authority is derived from God. It doesn't have an existence independent of itself. It's derivative. This is the consistent testimony of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, God is revealed as the supreme king who makes everything out of nothing in six days. And then on the seventh day, he takes his seat as the eternal king of the universe. When the Israelites demand to have a king like the nations, God notes that they have sinfully rejected him as their king. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God spells out that the kings of Israel are to submit to his rule. This was radically different from the other kingdoms around Israel where the king had all authority unto himself. He didn't have to submit to anybody else. See, the authority of kings is circumscribed. It has limits beyond which it becomes illegitimate. Kings, too, answer to God. In the New Testament, Jesus tells Pilate that his authority has been granted him from heaven. And that without that, Pilate would have no authority at all. Today, 
We're often tempted to think of the nation state, wherever we reside, but in America, for most of us. We think of the nation state as the seat of ultimate authority, the arbiter of truth, the giver of rewards and punishments. But even the nation state answers to a higher authority, namely God. And the church must always be alert to proclaiming the truth of Scripture so that the state's authority is checked, that the state might recognize that it has no authority other than what God has granted it. Not that its authority is illegitimate, but that it's derivative. Delivering such a message, even implicitly, is daunting for Obadiah. By declaring to Ahab that Elijah was here, he was in essence stating that God's judgment upon Israel had reached a culminating moment, and he's concerned that Elijah is going to leave him out to dry. For Ahab, like many uh, tyrants, was fond of shooting the messenger. And Obadiah is concerned that if Elijah disappears, like he's been doing the last three years, that he would be punished for it. And his concern was probably accurate, considering that he knew Ahab very well, having working, worked in his court. Obadiah has, must now decide whether or not he truly fears the Lord, as the text says, or if his fear of his king is greater. Is God his ultimate master, or is Ahab? See, the Lord often uses persecution to refine his people, to determine if they truly love him above all other things. My kids and I have been watching this uh, reality show called Forged in Fire. If you're familiar, it's, it's a show where uh, blacksmiths compete uh, to forge knives out of, uh, out of metal. Um, and oftentimes, the blacksmiths, they're, they're working under various constraints and limitations, and there's cracks and other defects in their blades, and their blades have to go through this strength test uh, basically where the judges take their weapons and hammer them as hard as they can into some really uh, hard object. And many times their blades fail. They're not found true. They have cracks in them. Similarly, God uses these trials, these persecutions, to reveal what's in us, to sharpen and refine us to test us. Brothers and sisters, the time of testing is upon us. It's upon us theologically, but as many of you feel, it's upon us culturally as well. The difficult truth is that today, no matter how loving, how persuasive, how kind we are, how, how we present ourselves as believers to the world and how um, winsomely we articulate biblical truths, it will be received with hostility. This isn't to justify being jerks as if none of that matters, but it's simply to be realistic and also to pay heed to what Jesus said, that we ought to expect persecution. 
20 years ago, the costs of being a Christian in America were largely theoretical. Sure, people might not be persuaded by the gospel, but Christianity itself still held this, this remnant of cultural significance. And we need to keep in mind a proper perspective. I want to, to carefully qualify what I'm saying here. There's millions of Christians around the world who would trade places with us in a heartbeat. They actually do live in under regimes where it's illegal to even own a Bible or to meet publicly in the name of Christ. However, with that caveat, it is true that it's increasingly difficult to be a Christian, especially in elite institutions such as academia, Wall Street, politics. Like Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I want, to cons- I want you to consider some of the following scenarios that you may face in your, in your workplaces. <clears throat> You're a doctor. A patient walks into your office and wants your help in ending their life. This is happening in Canada right now. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Work in corporate America. An email comes out from HR saying that everybody now needs to put their pronoun preferences in their email signatures. What are you going to do? I'm not prescribing an exact response, but I am asking you, to deliberate on the cost you might have to pay to be faithful to Christ. Perhaps the time is coming when Christians in the West must accept that we will not be welcomed in positions of power or influence, that we all might have to become janitors or welders in order to hold to our convictions and remain employed. Perhaps... We will have cause to look to believers around the world for lessons in how to live faithfully under persecution. Perhaps we'll have to look to the house church in China or the underground church in Iran. Or if we want an example closer to home, maybe we can read about the history of the black church in America. How to remain faithful in the face of opposition and persecution. And of course we can read our Bibles. Which present the church as a remnant of exiles and wanderers on the earth. Making our pilgrimage through the wilderness. This is not our home. We have a hope that one day God will bring us home. But life in the wilderness is difficult, isn't it? Does God leave us on our own in the wilderness? Turn your attention to verse 15. Elijah gives Obadiah a word of assurance. As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So, first of all, Elijah assures Obadiah, it's not a trick. I'm not going to leave you high and dry. I am actually going to appear to Ahab. But most importantly, I'm doing so in the name of the Lord 
of hosts. This is the first time this term appears in the book of Kings. If you will recall in, in the beginning of chapter 17, Elijah swears a different oath. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, there will be neither dew nor rain on the earth. There, Elijah's drawing attention to the fact that Yahweh is Israel's God, not Baal. But here he uses a different term, the Lord of hosts. The NIV translates it, the Lord God Almighty. It's a phrase used to bring attention to the fact that the Lord is the God that commands the celestial armies of heaven. Host is this quaint old term that refers to armies. It's military language. Um, For example, in Exodus 15, after uh, the Egyptians are drowned in the Red Sea, Moses and Miriam sing sing this, this triumphant song, and they say, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. See, Elijah is declaring to Obadiah that Ahab might have his chariots and horses and his temporal authority, but the Lord of hosts, the God of heaven and earth, is on your side. The Lord is greater than he. He creates and he destroys with a mere word. If this God is for you, who can be against you? Brothers and sisters, we need the eyes of faith to realize that our God reigns. There is nothing that can happen to us outside of his control. Nothing that he does not that can happen to us that he doesn't authorize first. There's no authority that is over us that he hasn't put there. There's no circumstance that befalls us apart from his providence. Just going to flip forward to a little bit later in Second Kings. In Second Kings six, verses fourteen to eighteen, we have another scenario. Elisha here is with the army of Israel, and they're being surrounded by the Syrian army, who is attacking Israel. And Elisha. Elisha is called to give comfort to the the Israelites. I'm going to start reading here. When the servant of the man of God rose early and went out, behold, an army of horses and chariots was all around the city, and the servant says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, that being Elisha, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Brothers and sisters, do you you know that God is with you? That his, his chariots surround you? That he is guarding you? That he is preserving your soul. And that no human being has the power to take you from his hand. Turn to him. Take refuge in this God. Trust in his might and his power. 
and boldly stand for the gospel. He won't abandon you. Trust in him. I want to conclude with a question that perhaps you, you've considered in this passage. Why does God end the drought now? Because we've seen that it's not because Ahab repented. No, he's, he's continuing on his behavior. Why, why, on what basis can God end the drought? It seems like he's giving in to, to Israel. That their stubbornness has carried the day. And if this book is all that we had, we might come to that conclusion. But we have the complete revelation of God from both the Old and the New Covenant. And in the New Covenant, we discovered how God can forgive sin and reward the unrepentant. This is what Paul says in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the amazing love of God, that he, he deals with our sin before we ever deal with it ourselves. We love because he first loved us. There is nothing in us that merits his favor which makes his favor all the more glorious and spectacular. Friend, if you don't know this God, I invite you, repent of your sin. Put your trust in Jesus and what he's already done on the cross for you. Rest upon him. Believer, know that your struggle isn't based on your own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. Walk forward in faith this week in all that God has called you to do in whatever calling he's given you, knowing that you are secure in the everlasting arms of Christ. Let's pray.